0: Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, episode 35, King of Italy. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in the spring of 1797. As the Austrian war effort crumbled, the army of Italy pushed over the Alps in a lightning offensive towards Vienna, forcing the Habsburgs to the negotiating table. On April 18th, Napoleon and Austrian diplomats signed the Treaty of Leoben, finally bringing the War of the First Coalition to an end. We devoted most of last episode to Napoleon's evolution as a strategist, which I thought was a fitting end to a series of nine episodes where we spent a lot of time analyzing the maneuvers and battles of the army of Italy. This was a formative period for Napoleon as a soldier, but he was also sharpening his skills as a diplomat and politician. In this episode, we'll discuss the aftermath of the Treaty of Leoben, and observe Bonaparte's transformation into a master statesman. The First Italian Campaign gave Napoleon his first experience leading an army, and taught him lessons in strategy he carried with him the rest of his career. During that same period, and in its immediate aftermath, he also got his first experience wielding political power and negotiating with foreign powers. This too taught him valuable lessons he would carry with him when he rose to power in France. It was also even more fuel for his ambition. In the summer of 1797, he would confide to a friend, quote, I have tasted authority, and I will not give it up. Napoleon would not officially take the crown of Italy until 1805, but when he returned from his invasion of Austria in 1797, he was king in all but name. Remember, Leoben was only a ceasefire, and Britain remained at war with France. So the Republic's massive armies did not demobilize or return home. He remained commander of the army of Italy. And so, when Napoleon returned home from Austria, it was to Milan, not Paris. He was finally reunited with Josephine. His letters to his wife had begun to warm up again during the latter phases of the campaign, But, as always, he chastised her for not writing enough. From a letter dated February 19th, 1797, quote, My dear, I beg you, think of me often, and write me every day. You are ill, or else you do not love me. Do you think I have a heart of stone? Do my sufferings concern you so little? You must know I am very ill. I cannot believe it, you, who nature has given intelligence, tenderness, and beauty— you alone can rule my heart, you who doubtless know only too well the unlimited power you hold over me. Write to me, think of me, and love me. Yours always, for life, Bonaparte. Quote. Apparently, this is what was on Napoleon's mind as he beat Archduke Charles across the Alps. Once the couple were back together, all past transgressions seemed to have been forgotten. Napoleon doted on her and nothing pleased Josephine quite as much as playing first lady to a powerful man. A government official who was friendly with the couple during this period described taking a carriage ride with Napoleon, Josephine, and Louis-Alexandre Berthier, Napoleon's chief of staff. Napoleon paid particular attention to his wife, often taking conjugal liberties with her, which left Berthier and I not a little embarrassed but his free manners were marked with such a lively sentiment of affection and tenderness for that woman, as likable as she was good, and we could easily forgive them. Quote. Apparently, they couldn't keep their hands off of each other. Others had made similar observations back in Paris when the two were first engaged. It was just like old times. After Milan, they headed to Mombello, a former summer retreat of the Milanese nobility on the shores of Lake Maggiore about a half-day's journey outside the city. Mombello's owners had thrown in their lot with the Austrians, so it was no trouble to requisition the property for use as a headquarters for the Republican military. However, by the summer of 1797, the scene at Mombello didn't look very military, and it certainly didn't look very Republican. Napoleon and Josephine turned the villa into their private residence, and held court like a pair of monarchs. Naturally, the top brass of the army of Italy congregated around their chief at Mombello. They were joined by French diplomats and government officials, local Italian notables, and intellectuals and artists from all over the continent who were eager to get a glimpse of this famous young general and his intriguing socialite wife. No woman in Europe was better at playing hostess than Josephine. She organized a packed social calendar with dances, salons, scenic outings, and hunting trips. Soon, Mambello bustled with so many visitors, they had to build a tent in the gardens to accommodate everything. An invitation to one of Josephine's events became one of the most coveted status symbols in Italy. Anyone with pretensions of power, influence, or social position came to Mambello to angle for her attention. The highest honor of all was a seat at the Bonaparte's dinner table. Napoleon and Josephine turned their meals into public spectacles, enjoyed with a few select guests, while the lesser courtiers watched in the wings. This was a scene straight out of an old regime monarchy. According to those who knew him, this change in etiquette corresponded with a change in Napoleon's behavior. He became distant and haughty, you might say more aristocratic. He began correcting subordinates when they referred to him with the informal "tu" rather than the more formal and deferential vous. Napoleon always played his cards close to his chest, but now more than ever he confided only with a small inner circle, mostly fellow officers, like Berthier, Mirat, Lannes, Leclerc, Marmont, and Junot. He trusted men like Massena or Augereau implicitly on the battlefield, but they were rarely privy to his personal thoughts and feelings. Napoleon was, in the most literal sense, living like a king. As is always the case, there was more to all the pomp and circumstance than self-indulgence. Maintaining the sumptuous lifestyle at Mombello was an important way to establish and exercise power. Napoleon's personal tastes were actually pretty spartan, and he had no attachment to formal manners, but he understood the value of these opulent displays and rigid court etiquette I think it's part of what attracted him to Josephine. She was a master of these matters in the same way her husband was a master of war. And the truth was, Napoleon needed all the help he could get in establishing French dominance over northern Italy. For better or worse, the Habsburgs had been the main pillar of stability in this part of the world for centuries. The First Italian Campaign kicked away that pillar and Bonaparte felt the weight of maintaining order over the whole region shift onto his shoulders. Paris offered little in the way of help or guidance. Their directive was simple, put the whole region under martial law and shoot anyone who opposes you. Napoleon was not afraid of using these methods when he thought they were justified, but he preferred a more subtle, humane approach, and that meant trying to develop some sense of legitimacy around the French occupation and that meant actually courting the Italians and playing politics. The extravagant court life at Mumbello was a part of that effort, but behind all the splendor, there was also a lot of traditional diplomacy and statecraft. This was Italy, the place that produced Machiavelli and the Borgias, notorious for its cutthroat politics since the days of the Roman Senate. With the power vacuum left behind by the Austrians, the situation on the peninsula was more fluid than it had been for centuries. Napoleon jumped into this ferment with both feet, to bring order to the chaos, and to serve his own ambitions. As we discussed in episode 28, Napoleon had already formed alliances with local Italians. Mostly, these were members of a radical political faction known as the Patriots. The patriots were left-wing idealists who sought to emulate the Parisian Jacobins, and many saw the French invasion as a golden opportunity to sweep out the hated old regime and usher in a revolutionary new era. The leading patriots were mostly from the bourgeoisie, but they had adherents among the urban working class as well. They were an important factor on the northern Italian political scene, but a tiny minority within the total population, mostly concentrated in a few large cities. The patriots didn't all agree on any single agenda, but generally speaking, they wanted to break the power of the church and the aristocracy, and build a new society ruled by democratic, constitutional government, which would destroy all the outdated, irrational vestiges of feudalism. To this end, they wanted to abolish all the old feudal administrative boundaries that divided the region into dozens of tiny statelets and semi-autonomous counties, and replace them with larger states, whose borders would be determined rationally, rather than by ancient feudal tradition. Bonaparte shared many of the Patriots' goals. For starters, they were his kind of people. If he'd been born in Milan instead of Corsica, he probably would have been a Patriot himself. And Napoleon didn't trust the Church and nobility either. However, he was not interested in bringing full-on social revolution to northern Italy he had more than enough on his plate already without creating even more upheaval. Everywhere the French army went, Bonaparte did his best to court local notables and put the local clergy at ease. That said, he had learned from painful experience that the aristocracy and Catholic clergy were often sources of resistance, and so he found it useful to build up the pro-French patriots as a counterweight to these traditional institutions of power. Napoleon also agreed with the Patriots on redrawing the borders of Italy and creating new states and administrative units. The Patriots were right. The old system was inefficient. Bonaparte needed an effective government if he was going to establish order and wring as much supplies and tax revenue as possible from the Italians. However, Napoleon did not throw his full weight behind the Patriots. While allowing them into government and adopting many of their basic proposals. He adamantly refused to take the next step and back their more radical schemes of creating a new social order. He also poured cold water on a formerly fringe idea that was beginning to gain traction among more radical patriots, a unified Italian state, one country from Sicily to the Alps. These early Italian nationalists lobbied Napoleon for support, But taking the army of Italy south on some crusade against Naples and the Vatican, which were at peace with France, was not a part of his plan. He had a hard enough time maintaining control over the Po Valley. The likelihood of one man with 80,000 soldiers being able to dominate the entire peninsula was pretty slim, even if that one man was Napoleon Bonaparte. And if a united Italy slipped free of Bonaparte's grasp, it would completely upset European geopolitics. Possibly it could become a rival to France. Much as the idea probably appealed to Napoleon's romantic nature and affinity for ancient Rome, it was a Pandora's box and far too dangerous to contemplate. The Italian nationalists would have to wait. But the French invasion had planted a seed, and that seed would grow into the Risorgimento movement which would one day unify Italy. So it was not a perfect marriage, but Napoleon and the Patriots collaborated in the creation of new states in northern Italy. These would be republics, modeled on the French Directory. In May of 1797, the various Patriot republics were amalgamated into a larger superstate, encompassing nearly all of French-occupied Italy, the Cisalpine Republic. The Cisalpine government was composed of Italian patriots and liberal nobles, but it depended on the army of Italy to maintain order, and much of its budget went to feeding and supplying French soldiers. There was no doubt who was pulling the strings. Napoleon even wrote its constitution, a nearly exact Italian translation of the French constitution. In June of 1797, Napoleon released a proclamation of the new republic which would be enshrined as the preamble of its constitution. Quote, the Cisalpine Republic has been for some years under the domination of the House of Austria. The French Republic succeeded it by right of conquest. It renounces it from this day, and the Cisalpine Republic is free and independent. Recognized by France and by the Holy Roman Emperor, it will soon be acknowledged by all of Europe. The Directory of the French Republic is not content to have employed its influence and the victories of the Republican armies only to ensure the political existence of the Cisalpine Republic, but it carries its solicitude still farther, and, convinced that if liberty be the first of blessings, a revolution may draw after it the most terrible of all calamities. It gives to the Cisalpine people its own constitution, the result of the wisdom of the most enlightened nation in Europe." Therefore, the Cisalpine people ought to pass from a military to a constitutional government. That this passage may be made without shock or anarchy, the Directory has thought it right to name, for this time only, the members of the government and the legislature, in such a way that when the first year shall have expired, the people will elect their own public functionaries, according to the Constitution. Many years have passed away since the existence of a republic in Italy. The sacred fire of liberty was extinguished, and the finest part of Europe was subject to a foreign yoke. It belongs to the Cisalpine Republic to show to the world, by its wisdom, its energy, and the good organization of its armies, that modern Italy is not degenerated, that it is still worthy of liberty. End quote. Fine words, but what kind of state is proclaimed into existence by a foreign general? brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Napoleon remained a servant of France, subordinate to the Directory in Paris but there was now a sovereign state on the map that was fully under his influence. The Cisalpine Republic made Bonaparte a political player in his own right, with a source of power independent from his position in the French hierarchy. France had a new sister republic, but Paris was not pleased. The directors had specifically instructed Napoleon not to make these types of arrangements. As they prepared to negotiate a permanent peace with Austria, Their main priority was maintaining French control of the Rhine River. To that end, they had envisioned trading away most or all of the gains in Italy in exchange for annexation of Western Germany and Belgium and formal recognition of their influence over the Dutch government. The directors saw the creation of a sister republic in northern Italy as an unnecessary provocation of Austria. It could also create a political nightmare. The optics of selling out a pro-French revolutionary state back to the Habsburgs were very bad for a state that claimed to be the defender of liberty. But, as was becoming his habit, Bonaparte defied their directions, then informed them after the fact, daring them to undo what was already done. Better to beg forgiveness than ask permission. He created the Cisalpine Republic under his own initiative, then forced the Austrians to recognize it in the ceasefire agreement at Leoban. Clearly, French foreign policy in Italy emanated from Bonaparte's headquarters, not from Paris. Napoleon had taken control, and the Directory was unable to reassert itself. If you want a measure of Napoleon's growing power, the Treaty of Leoban is a good place to start. In negotiating this agreement, Bonaparte had effectively taken French diplomacy into his own hands. It's worth noting that 18th-century generals had a great deal more leeway than modern commanders to undertake basic diplomatic and political tasks. It wasn't until the invention of the telegraph that civilian politicians and war ministries were able to assert any level of control over events at the front. In Napoleon's day, it was routine for a field commander to negotiate a temporary agreement with an enemy general, subject to ratification by their respective governments but these arrangements were usually limited in scope, dealing only with the cessation of hostilities. At Leoben, Bonaparte had taken the liberty of negotiating a much more far-reaching agreement. He attached conditions to the ceasefire that went far beyond pure military necessity, clearly encroaching upon the realm of high diplomacy. In return for peace, Bonaparte demanded the Austrians recognize France's conquests in Italy. Giving up all traditional Habsburg territorial claims on the region. His Austrian counterparts recognized how unusual it was to demand such a high price for a ceasefire, but with their army collapsing and the French only a few days' march from Vienna, they had been ordered to make peace at almost any price. Once again, Bonaparte had the audacity to ask for too much, and somehow managed to get it. While still nominally a servant of the Directory, Bonaparte's influence had grown to actually overtake it in some areas of policy. When Paris objected, he threatened to resign his commission, and strongly implied he would then run for civilian political office himself, challenging the Directory right out in the open. Pro-Bonaparte newspapers were already comparing the young general to Julius Caesar, and we all know what happened next in Caesar's career after he won a war across the Alps. By mid-1797, it was abundantly clear that Bonaparte was a threat to the authority of the central government, and this was no accident. Around this time, Napoleon told a friend, quote, What I have done so far is nothing. I am only at the beginning of a career that lies before me. Do you suppose that I have triumphed in Italy for the mere aggrandizement of the directory lawyers, the Carnots, the Baras of the world? What an idea. End quote so why didn't the directors do something about him? With the war over, surely this was the time to play hardball and remove Napoleon from command before he had a chance to grow into a bigger threat. For starters, we should always bear in mind that the Directory was a committee. For simplicity's sake, I often refer to the institution as a single entity, which might imply that its members were of one mind and acted in concert in the common interest of the institution but that was very rarely the case. The five directors had not maneuvered their way to the top of the cutthroat game of revolutionary politics by acting magnanimously and sticking their necks out for others. Each man pursued his own personal agenda, even at the expense of his fellow directors or the institution itself. They were constantly scheming against one another, forming factions, and maneuvering for dominance. Napoleon himself played a part in these intrigues, exploiting divisions within the executive branch to ensure the institution was too weak and too beholden to him to make a serious move against him. We'll discuss the internal politics of the Directory further in a future episode. The main reason the directors were unable to dismiss Napoleon is something we've discussed before, his growing public profile. All throughout history, civilian governments have found it difficult to replace popular, successful generals. As early as spring of 1796, only a few months into the First Italian Campaign, the Directory was already holding back from disciplining Bonaparte, out of deference to his reputation. A year of conquests and victories, and propaganda, had further burnished that reputation. The successful invasion of Austria was his crowning glory. Napoleon had delivered the people of France what they most desired, an end to the ruinous war that had plagued the country for more than five years. In doing so, he cemented his position as one of the most popular figures in the country. When news of the Treaty of Leoben reached France, spontaneous celebrations broke out in every town and village. In some places, the party lasted for days. Obviously, no one man can take credit for victory in a war waged by dozens of armies and fleets across four continents, but there could be no doubt that Napoleon's campaign was the one that drove the final nail in the coffin. The public likes a simple explanation, and Napoleon's propaganda machine was there to give it to them. As the people celebrated, the name on everyone's lips was Bonaparte. Songs and poems in his honor appeared. Some spontaneously, some helped along by the army of Italy's printing presses. Newspapers called him the savior, the new Caesar, the liberator, the hero of Italy, and the preserver of liberty. Napoleon's PR apparatus helped fan the flames of adulation, but from what we can tell, much of this outpouring was genuine. France had been weary of war, and Napoleon ended it. His achievements really were remarkable. And people were, understandably, impressed. Ironically, for a man of war, Napoleon built a reputation as a bringer of peace. And in a way, he was. He had no particular love of bloodshed, and he understood that aggressive, decisive action was the fastest way to bring a conflict to an end. And that's what he'd done. On Bastille Day, 1797, Napoleon made a holiday address to the Army of Italy. Quote, Soldiers, today is the anniversary of 14 July. You see before you the names of our comrades-in-arms who have died on the field of honor for the liberty of our country. They are examples for you. You owe yourselves entirely to the Republic. You owe yourselves entirely to the happiness of 30 million French men and women. You owe yourselves entirely to the glory of the name that has received new brilliance by your victories. Soldiers, I know that you are profoundly affected by the evils threatening France, but the country is not in any real danger. The same men are there who made it triumph over the coalition. Mountains separate us from France, but if it were necessary to maintain the constitution, to defend liberty, to protect the government and republicans, you would surmount them with the rapidity of eagles. Soldiers, the government watches over the law that is entrusted to it. If royalists show themselves, they will be killed in a moment. Have no fear, and swear in the shadow of heroes who have died by our sides for liberty, swear on our new flags, implacable war on the enemies of the Republic and the Constitution. End quote. Like all of Napoleon's pronouncements, this statement was reprinted in newspapers all over France. It went off like a bombshell. There was nothing objectionable on the surface but the subtext was quite inflammatory. Napoleon was announcing that he and his army were not merely neutral instruments of government policy, but independent actors on the political scene who might act as they saw fit to protect the revolution. Armed men and threats of violence had been part of republican politics for years. Napoleon was far from the first person to breach that taboo. But it was an unsettling development for anyone who hoped the end of the war would bring an end to military influence over politics. The Bastille Day speech wasn't quite a declaration of war against the civilian politicians, but it was certainly confrontational. Napoleon was announcing his arrival as a player on the political scene. Privately, Bonaparte told friends quote, The directors are selfish men. I very much doubt that we can remain in accord much
1: longer. They are jealous of me. I can no longer obey. End quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: In Italy, Napoleon was already wielding power like a seasoned statesman and continued to pursue his own foreign policy, independent of Paris. By way of example, I'd like to examine the fates of Genoa and Venice. After the surrender of Mantua, Bonaparte began looking for ways to shore up Republican control over northern Italy, and turned his eyes to the last enclaves that remained formally outside French influence. Piedmont was off the table. After Napoleon routed the Piedmontese army, they signed a treaty with France. Piedmont held up its end of the bargain, and Bonaparte did not feel justified violating the agreement. The two merchant republics of Venice and Genoa were a different story. These city-states might have shared the title of republic with France, but their social and political systems had very little in common with the Directory. Venice and Genoa were aristocratic oligarchies, dominated by inherited wealth and privilege. They were just as philosophically opposed to the revolution as the rest of old regime Europe. But despite their antipathy to France both states had remained neutral during the War of the First Coalition. The Venetians and Genoese never let ideology get in the way of profit, and preferred doing business with both sides over draining their treasuries into armies and fleets. This neutrality was purely a legal and commercial distinction. Neither state made any secret of their sympathy for the coalition. They feared radical ideas, and had been quite content under the old status quo of Austrian hegemony over Italy. With these not so secret sympathies, Bonaparte's ambitions, and the whole peninsula engulfed in war and unrest, it was only a matter of time before both cities were dragged into the maelstrom. Both were forced to accept French and Austrian troops moving across their territory during the course of the campaign. Verona, which was the Army of Italy's main base of operations for several phases of the campaign, remained technically Venetian territory, even as it was occupied by thousands of French soldiers. As French power in Italy grew, Napoleon's demands on Venice and Genoa escalated. Their ruling oligarchs had little choice but to hand over money and supplies, and grant new privileges to French soldiers and officials. Not only was there the implied threat of the Army of Italy, They had to worry about their own people, many of whom sympathized with revolutionary ideas, particularly in Genoa, where French influence was strong and there was a large, disenfranchised underclass. Early in the campaign, Napoleon had grumbled about the hostility of these supposedly neutral city-states, but once the French gained the upper hand, he sought to heighten the tension in hopes of creating pretexts to bring Venice and Genoa under French influence. Venice was a particular imperative. Napoleon planned to force the Austrians to recognize the French conquest of their former Italian territories. He knew they would be unlikely to accept without compensation, in the form of new territory elsewhere. And he also knew that the Directory would have no interest in bargaining away French gains in the Low Countries or Germany. So, if he was going to hang on to his little personal kingdom in Italy, he would need another territory to use as a bargaining chip. Even before the invasion of Austria began, he already had one in mind, terra firma. Terra firma was the nickname the Venetians gave to their holdings on the Italian mainland. To ensure Austrian recognition of the Cisalpine Republic, his personal power base, Napoleon would trade away more than half the territory of a neutral state that France had no legal right to offer. Not his finest hour. To put the plan into action, Napoleon needed some semi plausible way to seize Terra Firma, without it looking too much like a naked land grab. In early 1797, Bonaparte ratcheted up the tension and waited for an excuse. A string of diplomatic incidents ensued, but the Venetian government carefully avoided giving the French any pretext for intervention. But Napoleon wouldn't have to wait long. Venetian Terra Firma was a powder keg. The local patriots were emboldened by the example of the Cisalpine Republic and agitated more fiercely than ever. French supplied patriot militias even seized control of several towns. Alarmed by this and by the general chaos of the French invasion, local aristocrats began organizing conservative locals into armed militias of their own. By the spring of 1797, Venetian Terra Firma was on the brink of civil war. There were two different armies garrisoned in the region, the French and the Venetian. But in a situation like this, more armies does not translate into more security. There was always the chance of the two forces coming to blows, and the presence of foreign troops always inflames the local population. As we've seen, this was particularly true of the French in 18th century Italy, where they were often perceived as enemies of Catholicism. The spark finally came on Easter Sunday, April 16th, 1797, in the city of Verona, one of the main French bases in northern Italy and the largest city in Terra Firma. Details are sketchy, but it seems a brawl between a group of French soldiers and Veronese civilians escalated into a small riot, culminating in the deaths of the four Frenchmen. That night, printed notices appeared all over town, calling on people to rise up and expel the French. The Venetian authorities raced through Verona all morning, pulling down every copy they could find, and replacing them with a new proclamation, urging calm. But the damage had been done. The whole city was on edge. That afternoon, another fight broke out, this time between Venetian and French soldiers. Mobs began to gather again, and shots rang out. The townspeople armed themselves, and Venetian soldiers began deserting their posts to join the mob. The events that would go down in history as the Veronese Easter had begun. The mobs invaded the military hospital and massacred sick and wounded French soldiers. Suspected patriots were lynched in the streets. The French were not particularly merciful either, unleashing artillery with little regard for collateral damage. Despite the savagery of the fighting, surprisingly few people were killed. The French pulled back to the fortified citadel at the center of town almost immediately, and the Veronese dared not follow. Every French unit in Verona seemed to know exactly what to do the moment the uprising began. After the initial outburst of violence, very few Republican soldiers were caught outside the citadel. Suspiciously few, because that mysterious call to arms which appeared overnight had not, in fact, been written by an outraged anti-French citizen of Verona, but by a group of high-ranking Italian patriots, hoping to incite an incident that would enable the French to take full control of the city. With the French bottled up in the citadel, the Veronese rebels felt they'd won. They broke into the city jail and freed dozens of Austrian prisoners of war, who formed the nucleus of a new citizen militia, which began preparing the city to resist the inevitable French counterstroke but the insurgent celebrations were premature. 7,000 French troops under General Kilmaine were already on their way. They had already been massing for an expedition into terra firma. Worse, the very next day, Bonaparte signed the Treaty of Leoben with the Austrians, ending any chance of the rebels receiving foreign aid. There would be no help from their own government either. The Veronese rebels had raised a Venetian flag from the highest tower in the city, hoping that their capital would send troops and formally order the local authorities and garrison to join the revolt. But the Venetians were interested in saving their own skins, and would not risk a direct confrontation with France to help a city they regarded as little more than a colony. Only a few days after it began, the Veronese Easter was already a foregone conclusion. Within days, Kilmaine's units were already massing outside the city, The assault began on April 22nd. The Veronese resisted tenaciously, but they were no match for professional soldiers. On April 23rd, the last resistance was quelled. Despite the ugly scene at the hospital, the French treated Verona leniently. There was no looting, and only 58 men were punished. Perhaps Bonaparte felt it would be unfair to punish the city for a revolt he himself had helped instigate. Combined with several smaller incidents in Venetian territory, France finally had an excuse to occupy all of terra firma. Napoleon had his bargaining chip. Venice's appeasement had achieved nothing. Napoleon was furious at their behavior during the crisis. Or, at least, he pretended to be. In fairness, Venetian soldiers had taken up arms against the French all over terra firma. They had done so in violation of their orders. But Bonaparte had no way of knowing that. He demanded the government of the city state submit to France and dissolve itself, threatening, quote, I shall be an Attila to the state of Venice. End quote. On May 12, 1797, Ludovico Manin resigned his position as Doge, chief executive of the Republic of Venice. Manin was the 120th man to hold the post, dating all the way back to the 8th century there would never be another. Venice handed itself over to the French, who occupied the city. Venice would continue to exist on paper as an independent republic until September, when it was formally handed over to the Austrians, but for all practical purposes, this was the end. Venice had existed for nearly a thousand years, and had never been conquered by a foreign power. Perhaps the revolutionaries were right, and this really was the dawning of a new age. Genoa was a much easier nut to crack. Patriot sympathies ran high, the government was unpopular, and there was little hostility to the French. In May of 1797, the Genoese patriots launched a series of raucous public demonstrations, demanding social reforms, democracy, and a modern constitution. The Genoese government was unable to restore order. Bonaparte offered to send French troops to end the chaos and broker a compromise. Everyone knew accepting the offer meant accepting French influence, but the oligarchs of Genoa had little choice. Napoleon's compromise was to offer the people of Genoa a referendum on the establishment of a new form of government. A yes vote was for the adoption of a French-style constitution. A no vote was for... Well, it was quite unclear what no would actually mean. Possibly the faltering status quo. Possibly back to the drawing board for a new constitution or maybe the patriots or the french would get tired of the process and simply overthrow the government napoleon had clearly stacked the deck in favor of a yes he might not have bothered with anger against the government still simmering and french troops on the streets the referendum probably stood a good chance of passing without the ambiguous wording the result was yes in a landslide and on june 14th 1797 The Republic of Genoa vanished from the map, and the Ligurian Republic was born. Napoleon was clearly pleased by the results, because this type of, let's call it a carefully managed referendum, became one of his favorite political tricks. I think the stories of Genoa and Venice falling under French influence are great examples of Napoleon's growing skills as a politician and diplomat. His plans to subjugate the two city-states went into motion before the first Italian campaign was even officially over. Even at this early stage, Bonaparte was beginning to master the cutthroat methods of early modern European politics. He played factions off against one another in service of his own agenda, formed practical short-term alliances, and manipulated events behind the scenes to achieve his objectives indirectly. Machiavelli would approve. The oligarchs of Venice and Genoa were no slouches when it came to this game. In fact, both cities were notorious for intrigue and Byzantine court politics. You could say the same about the directors back in Paris, all of whom had navigated the treacherous waters of revolutionary politics and fought their way into leadership, knowing the price of failure was a trip to the guillotine. But at age 28, Napoleon got the upper hand on all of them. Just like the enemies he faced on the battlefield during the campaign, his political and diplomatic opponents were playing by an old set of rules that Napoleon knew no longer applied. In diplomacy, 18th century leaders had always avoided large territorial changes that might upset the delicate European balance of power. Napoleon understood that on the eve of the 19th century, the era of the delicate European balance of power was already long gone. Europe was up for grabs. Borders would be redrawn, spheres of influence would shift. He saw that with the power of the revolutionary armies, France could ensure that those changes were in her favor, and maybe even remake Europe in her own image, banishing the old regimes forever and ushering in an era of enlightened government and mutual security, and of course, permanent French hegemony. In politics, Napoleon understood that the era of a small elite making all the decisions behind closed doors was over. Public opinion mattered. The love of the people could make a career, and the anger of the people could topple a government. Napoleon would not enter French politics as a novice. His time in Italy was a master course in wielding power and navigating politics and diplomacy would apply these lessons as first consul of france and then as emperor that's all for now next time i'd like to try something a little different we've now reached the end of napoleon in italy this show doesn't have seasons like a tv show but if it did this would probably be the end of one so i thought it might be a good time to do a listener question and answer segment If you're listening to this in late September or early October of 2018 and have a question or some topic you'd like to hear discussed in more detail, please reach out on Twitter or Facebook. I'll create a thread for suggestions, or you can send them in a private message. I'd like to keep the answers to about five minutes maximum, so keep that in mind when you write your questions. I'd also prefer to limit ourselves to general questions, or questions from the period of Napoleon's life we've already covered on the show. If you want to know something about, say, the Battle of Austerlitz, wait until we've gotten there in the narrative. Again, there will be posts about this on Facebook and Twitter where you can respond, or you can send a private message. Until next time, thanks for listening. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, But nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off US versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.